Hello, welcome back to Unqualified Analysis, the show with zero credentials that just keeps firing off opinions. Anywho, um, if it was a good Monday night, boy, was that a fun one to watch. Uh, if it was a bad Monday night matchup, boy, was that painful to get through. And um, just to cover my bases, if it was just an average run-of-the-mill Monday night game, you know, a 10-point win by somebody or other, that game definitely existed. That that definitely happened. Um, yeah, got my bases covered with all the potential... Uh, Potential stuff. Wow, what a crazy play there at the end. Uh, ooh, excuse me. You know what? I'm just going to leave that in there because, you know what? Add some character to it. You know, less than a minute into the podcast, already burping into the mic, so we're off to a hot start. Uh, either way, on today's episode, not the greatest week of games in the world, but it was a you know solid week. We learned some things. Um, first and foremost, Bills versus Chiefs Part 2. Need I say more? Marquee matchup of the week, maybe even of the season thus far. We'll talk about it here in just a second. Uh, I will attempt to have a hard yet reasonable discussion about Tom Brady and hope not to be uh, just eviscerated later on by, by either Tom Brady's play or just people in general pulling up the receipts. And uh, the Giants just keep on winning in spite of what they got on the roster. All that good stuff and more. Uh, Let's just get straight into week six, shall we? NFL week six. And of course, where the hell else would we start? We are at the Bills versus Chiefs because why delay? Why why bury the lead here? Why put it later when half of y'all are probably tuned into a different podcast by that point? Anyways, let's just hit it right up top where you guys are actually listening and have the full attention straight up. Let's get into the summary. Here it is, folks. We've been waiting since they played one of the greatest games ever seen in last year's playoffs, now the rematch is finally upon us. Allen versus Mahomes, the two best teams in the AFC, maybe the two best teams in the league. This was billed as probably the marquee matchup of the season, and boy, did it not disappoint. It started off slower than expected with the teams each reeling off long drives that ended with turnovers to make it 0-0, a stalemate going into the going into the second quarter, out of the first quarter, but things live livened up in the second. Whew, stumbling here early, what else is new? Uh, after the Bills took the initial lead on a field goal, Mahomes hit Juju on a 42-yard bomb for a touchdown to put the Chiefs up 7-3. Then it was back to the defensive struggle until 129 left in the half. Bills started pinned inside their own five, but Josh Allen did what he's done time and again now, orchestrating an explosive drive capped by a 34-yard bomb to star of this game last year. Uh, Gabe Davis for a touchdown to put them back up in front 10-7 with 16 seconds remaining in the half. If there's one thing we learned from this matchup last season, though, in the postseason, it's that any amount of time is too much for Patrick Mahomes. He threw a couple pretty passes to get them 28 yards, setting up Harrison Butker to absolutely eviscerate a 62-yard field goal uh, to take the game into halftime 10-10. The thing hit the net with a 60-yard attempt. Absolute lunacy. One of the biggest legs we've ever seen out there. Maybe not the uh, most consistent, though, as we'll see here in just a bit. From there, it was an entertaining second half. Each team had one punt. Uh in the entire second half, excuse me, and those came on back-to-back possessions in the middle of the fourth. 
Uh, the third quarter saw the Bills and the Chiefs exchanging long drives, uh, capped by touchdowns. Uh, one on a pass to Stephon Diggs, the other on a pass to McCole Hardman, respectively, to make it 17-17 heading into the final frame. Harrison Butker nailed a 44-yarder with just under 10 to go uh, to give the Chiefs a 20-17 lead. Missed one earlier to give them the lead, uh, but did nail the one to give them a, uh, a lead there in the end. Don't know if I said lead enough times or if I was clear enough either way. From there, can't exchange a few quick possessions, including one where Chris Jones definitely tripped Josh Allen for a sack, but it just wasn't called uh, before Josh Allen had the game-defining moment. Uh... Led the Bills on a 12-play, 76-yard drive. Took four and a half minutes off the clock. Capped it with a 14-yard strike to Dawson Knox with a minute and four remaining to give the Bills a late 24-20 lead. But as we know, a minute four is plenty for Mahomes. So this one was not over just yet. To the Bills' surprise and relief, however, we did not get any classic Mahomes heroics. Vaughn Miller showed why the Bills paid him all that money in free agency this offseason as he gets pressure on Mahomes with which forces a bad pass that is picked by cornerback Teron Johnson to end the, the drama quickly and put the game to bed. It wasn't quite the dazzling offensive explosion we got in the playoffs last season, but the Bills win a thriller in Arrowhead 24-20. to Let's look at some notable performers in this one. The Bills, Josh Allen, 27-40, of 40, just 67.5%. Uh, no big deal, no big deal. Uh, 329 yards, 8.2 yards per attempt. Three touchdowns, zero interceptions, one fumble lost. Had less than three yards per carry, so not the most efficient day, not his greatest day overall, but also didn't kill the team either. Quite to, to the contrary, he was really the reason they won the game in the end there. Uh, behind him, running back Devin Singletary filled in the gaps in that run game, had 85 yards on five yards per carry on the ground. Also contributed through the air as per usual, four receptions, 22 yards. Continues to just carve out that starting spot. Uh... Distance himself from the rest of the pack in that backfield. Uh, probably going to end up being the go-to back in the playoffs once again this year. Uh, on the outside, wide receivers, Stephon Diggs, first off, had 10 receptions, 148 yards and a touchdown. Was not stopped all day. Gabe Davis had that long touchdown we talked about before. Had that flash play. Also, on the day, on the whole, had three receptions, 74 yards and a touchdown to uh, lead the way there uh, behind Stephon Diggs. And I guess that's not really how you lead, but I digress. On the defensive end, Vaughn Miller, absolute star. He got two critical sacks, got a pressure on Mahomes late that uh, led to the interception, which ended the game in this one. Worth every single penny, in my opinion, and he's only going to continue to show that down the stretch, I would imagine. On the Chiefs' side, quarterback Patrick Mahomes, just at the 60% uh, percent mark, 25 of 40 through the air. Both of them have 40 pass attempts. Interesting little coincidence there. Mahomes had more yards, though, 338 and 8.5 yards per attempt. Two touchdowns, two interceptions. Didn't lose a fumble, but straight-up average on the touchdown-interception ratio. Team rushing, 68 yards on 18 attempts, 3.8 yards per carry, no touchdowns. Simply not going to cut it. They had three rushes for six yards in the fourth quarter with Pat Mahomes scampering for three yards to lead the way. Again, not going to cut it. 
going to talk about that uh, run game in just a minute here. On the outside, Juju Smith-Schuster led the way with five receptions, 113 yards, and that one uh, 42-yard touchdown to get things started there. Uh, tight end Travis Kelsey had eight receptions, 108 yards. Did not get a touchdown, but had a hell of a day in his own right. Uh on the defensive side, linebacker Nick Bolton continues to be a tackling machine in the middle for the Chiefs, leading all players with 13 tackles and tying uh, for the game lead with two tackles for loss. Key takeaways I had in this one, um, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but what more is there to say about the Bills? They're the best team in the league, and they showed it again on the biggest stage Sunday evening. The last question uh, that needed to be answered was whether they could take the show on the road and get running yards without Josh Allen. And, oh, look, Josh Allen had under three yards per carry, but Devin Singletary had five yards per carry, more attempts, over 100 yards from scrimmage against a stout Chiefs front. May not have a great secondary, but you got Chris Jones in the front, you got Nick Bolton behind him. Uh, not a bad group of linebackers and linemen, to say the least. So very impressive in my mind. In my mind, any debate there was or has been over who the top dog in the league was between Chiefs, Eagles, and Bills was ended for the time being last night. Put a cork in it until eventually all teams go through cold stretches. It's just a, a fact of life in the league. So we'll have to wait and see if they go through a cold stretch at, at, at some point here. Um, maybe stumble down the stretch and, you know, that, that, that discussion will become open once again between the Chiefs, Eagles, and Bills. But for right now, the Bills have just separated themselves in my mind. I think certainly really going out on a limb here and saying that the Bills are the best team in the league, but that's just a fact. Bills are the clear-cut number one all night, all day. Uh, so I won't really harp on them too, too much. On on the other side, on Jesus Christ, I already forgot who they played. Chiefs side, whew, man, the brain is not working today. Uh, I don't so much hold this one against the Chiefs on the grand scale because, again, they lost to the best team in the league. But from a treetops perspective, just on what little things we can nitpick here, it highlights the deficiencies they need to address in the running game. With this post-Tyreek Hill offense, there was always going to be some transitional pains, uh, and the evolution of the run game was an unavoidable part of that. I think the biggest, most glaring part of that transition was going to be in the run game. Uh, the Chiefs' weapons on the outside, MVS and Juju particularly, really dictate that tough physical football is the overall direction for this offense, overall philosophy they need to adopt to maximize what they've got out there. But the backfield, uh, the run game in particular, is still built for speed. I think the fact that the Chiefs couldn't run the ball to kill the clock late, having three rushes, six yards in those final uh, in that final quarter in particular, uh, it highlighted that that that's a flaw in this team's construction. Also, the fact that they were turning to Jarek McKinnon for closeout carries, or one particular closeout carry, I guess, is telling in and of itself. I'm not sure there's an overnight fix for this, but also just looking across the field at the Bills, I don't know that the Chiefs necessarily need to have a need to be great at running necessarily. They just need to be threatening when they have to be, get yards when they need to, close out games when they need to on the ground. Um, so I think. With all that said, what the Chiefs need is a higher usage rate for rookie running back Isaiah Pacheco, especially down the stretch of these games. He was completely absent in the fourth quarter. Maybe it's one of those rookie things where you don't necessarily trust him just yet in those uh, clutch predicaments, but 
He provides a, uh, a factor that the other backs on that team just don't have. He's not physically imposing by running back standards, but he's got three inches and 10 pounds on uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire uh, and behind a very good offensive line like the Chiefs have. That little bit of exercise might make the difference when they need hard yards late. Not to mention, still has an explosive element to his game, so there's always a chance that he breaks one off on those late touches. He does return the kicks back there. Um, he was an explosive player in college. I believe at Rutgers was where he went to school. Uh, at the very least, Pacheco has better size and fresher legs than the 30-year-old Jarek McKinnon at this stage of their respective careers. So look for Isaiah Pacheco to become more involved in this running game as the season goes on for the Chiefs. He's going to be crucial for them in January. Look for him to really start coming on uh, November, December into that playoff push down the stretch. If not, they're going to have some real problems closing out games once again in the playoffs. Uh, with that said, though, let us move on to the next game. Um, I guess probably the shocker of the week, Buccaneers versus Steelers. The Steelers came out and punched the Bucks in the mouth early with a Najee Harris uh, run, punching in a touchdown uh, on their first possession to take the lead 7-0. Did I phrase that uh, confusing enough? If not, I can always go back and uh, have some more uh, dyslexic shit fit right in front of your ears, but I digress. 7-0 Steelers early. Uh, the Bucks weren't quite able to cross the goal line and get a touchdown, but they battled back with tough defense and a trio of Ryan Suckup field goals to make it 10-9 at halftime. At some point in there, I wasn't quite paying attention. If I was a better podcast host uh, slash producer, I would have put this in uh, somewhere in here, but... Kenny Pickett did go down with an injury at some point. I haven't gotten an update on what that injury is and how long he might be out. From my understanding, I don't know that it is a major injury. I can't can't talk out of my ass, though. I have I have no no idea what the prognosis is. He did go out at some point, so it was the Trubisky uh, Trubisky time once again. Um, after an exchange of field goals start the second half, the defensive battle continued with neither team scoring until the fourth when things got dramatic. Steelers started the fourth quarter with a 71-yard drive capped by a touchdown from Chase Claypool, uh, self, uh, self-acclaimed top five wide receiver in the league to make it 20-12. to uh, Then on the ensuing possession, Brady answers right back with a five-plus-minute 73-yard touchdown drive capped by a pass to Leonard Fournette. For that aforementioned touchdown, they tried to tie the game with a two-point conversion, but failed, making the score 28-22-18. Then, on the next drive, the Steelers just squeeze every last second left on the clock out of it. They got the ball with 438 remaining in the game and held the ball until zeros were on the clock. Steelers pull off the shocker of the day, shocker of the weekend, leading wire to wire en route to taking down Brady and the Bucks. 20 to 18 and some notable performers in this one. Mitch Trubisky led the way in uh in Kenny Pickett's absence and really played well, all things considered. Really, not even all things considered, just objectively, he played well. He he came in, in that backup role and played beautifully. Nine of twelve, 144 yards, uh, 12 yards per attempt, one touchdown, no turnovers on the day. That is all you can ask for Mitch Trubisky, and he is earning himself money after this contract with the Steelers, which I think is good for everybody involved. Kenny Pickett, when he was in there, wasn't, I mean, he wasn't good, but he also wasn't terrible. He didn't turn the ball over, but also 11 of 18, 67 yards, less than four yards per attempt passing, which would be a bad yard per carry average 
it's an atrocious yard per pass attempt to average. Uh, got a touchdown, like I said, no turnovers, though. So he didn't shoot the team in the foot. Certainly didn't elevate them either, though. Uh, team rushing 77 yards, uh, 2.7 yards per carry, zero touchdowns, which makes, it, which makes it even more impressive that they were able to close it out late with that lack of production that they had all day against maybe the best rushing defense, certainly in the last five years, uh, maybe this year as well in that vaunted uh, Bucks front seven there. Chase Claypool really did lead the way for him, though. Seven receptions, 96 yards, and a touchdown. Uh, very, very good performance. Again, if I was a good podcast host, I would have included some uh, defensive performers in here, but I just I just didn't go back and find anyone. I'm sure there was a star in there somewhere, but uh, I apologize to the defense. I, I, I suppose I just don't respect you at this point. Um, on the Buccaneers side, though, Tom Brady, uh, flat 60%, 25 of 40. That's Mass B. Um... Jesus Christ, what was I even thinking at this point? 25 of 40. I'm actually not even sure that's uh, 60%. I think that might be, uh, you know what? Yeah, whatever. I, I just, you just, you just totally heard a guy who got lost in his own brain there for a second. But I'm back. I'm back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, 25 of 40, 243 yards, 6.1 yards per attempt, one touchdown, no interceptions for Tom Brady. Uh, again, another one of those things didn't really elevate the team, but didn't shoot the team in the foot either. He was just kind of there. Uh, Leonard Fournette, really the star of this game for the Bucks. He had 99 total yards, 63 on the ground, uh, with a workman like three yards per carry, RIP and peace to his knees. Um, also six receptions, 36 yards. That pivotal role that Tom Brady always needs as the dump off guy. Uh, got one touchdown through the air too. So he's really... The focal point of this offense been that way all season. Will probably continue to be uh, even more so. Probably amplified going into the playoffs. Uh, wide receiver Chris Godwin led the way on the outside with six receptions, 95 yards, and zero touchdowns. And uh, like I said, no defensive stars in this one because I'm a bad podcast host who forgot to put them in here. But uh, just know there's there's a lot of defense played. It was a 2018 game, so can't really get a. Can't really get a game like that and not have a whole lot of defense play, but that's uh, that's my comments on the subject because I didn't put any notes here. And uh, it was just one of the games that was on a small TV up in the corner uh, in the bar that I was watching the Vikings game at. Uh, another one I'm not going to get to in the major matchups, but hey, we won, so that, that was fun, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, either way, no real takeaways for the Steelers. Not a playoff team. Well, I'm, I'm really just watching the Steelers to see if Mike Tomlin can keep the... Um, the, the over the, or the 500 or better streak alive. They can go like nine and eight this year and be super, super hyped. Um, gonna have to take a miracle and all likelihood, but that's the only reason I'm watching the Steelers. Not other than that, they're not really a playoff team. If they do get to the playoffs, they're going to get just smacked across the face by uh, whoever they play. Um, I doubt they're going to win the division. So, uh, yep. Just doom and gloom on the Steelers side on the Bucks side. All right, let's let's uh, let's pull up a seat here, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, shit's about to get real. Will I get crucified if I maybe, kind of, sorta, have an inclination to uh, possibly think that uh, Tom Brady might be uh, might be finished? Just a just an innocent little question, but uh, he's not been strictly speaking good this year. He's put up okay numbers he's played behind the running game he's played behind the defense I've seen him yelling a lot at his teammates 
But at the same time, there is no denying that he does not have the zip on the ball that he had last year. He's not making the throws he had last year. And he has the same personnel he had last year, too. He's still got Godwin. He's still got Evans. He may not have Antonio Brown anymore, but he has... Ample weapons for a quality quarterback to go out there and put together a good offense. Now, I will cut him a certain measure of slack because doesn't really have a whole lot of offensive line to work with. With a 45, not an ideal situation to uh, be coming out there and getting absolutely plastered to the turf. Uh, when you're, bon- you're getting old and your bones are getting brittle anyways. So, I mean, not necessarily... Uh, the- I mean, you want you wonder why Giselle uh, didn't want you to come back. This is why, because a couple injuries in the middle of the line, and oh look, all of a sudden, you're about to get killed for 17 games, plus another game or two in the playoffs. So yeah, just just enjoy that. You know what, for the, for the good of Tom Brady, I kind of hope this is his last year. He's the greatest of all time. I don't want a... Uh, it's already kind of a sad end because his uh, his marriage just like crumbled before our eyes. Really, seemingly for the sole reason, I'm sure there were more reasons other than this. It's probably deeper than just this, but just as a as a dumb guy who has a, a terrible track record of relationships, looking at this from afar, and I'm not the only one thinking this. You know, I'm not the only dumb person thinking this, but uh, you know. I totally lost my train of thought there. Either way, this is not looking good for Tom Brady. This is a sad end at this point. Totally at his own expense. The only reason the relationship seemingly ended is because he came back to football because he's addicted to football, it seems like. So, yeah, you know what? I just hope for Tom Brady's happiness in the long run. I I hope they work it out. I have a strong feeling they won't. But uh, I think I've already talked too much about Brady's divorce. Um, in in the context of football, I mean, maybe the Bucks make the playoffs. I think they're still probably. <laughs> I mean, hell, the the the. I guess it's between the Saints, uh, the Falcons, and the Bucks. Take your pick of those teams. Goodness gracious, it is not it is not a good year in the uh, in the NFC South. The fact that the the Falcons are even even in that discre- in discussion. Jesus Christ, easy for me to say, um, is a credit to them and the credit to, to what Arthur Smith has been able to do with that team. But I've already rambled too much. We need to get this show rolling here. Uh, up next, we've got the 49ers versus the Falcons. So I personally came into this one thinking the Falcons were going to be feisty. They were probably going to cover that spread because I think it was something disrespectful, like five and a half points uh, with the Falcons being at home. 49ers having to go across country with Jimmy G as the quarterback, straight up disrespectful. Uh, So I thought they would keep this close, but I did not necessarily think this game would turn out how it did. A touchdown on the opening drive and a scoop and score Gave the Falcons a 14-0 lead at the end of the first quarter. The 49ers stormed back in the second quarter, though, with two straight touchdown drives. capped by a Brandon IU touchdown. Uh, two of them, in fact, to give oh, whew, to give them a 14-14 tie. My goodness, I think I might have typed this 
uh, the worst possible way. Uh, Mariota answered right back, though, with a rushing touchdown to give the Falcons the lead 21-14 to going into the half. And from there, the Falcons capped their first offensive drive in the second half with a Kyle Pitts uh, his first career touchdown of his career. Uh, did I say career enough times? Career. Uh, 28-14 was the score. And from there, both teams really just floundered late. Both of them kind of forgot how to play offense. I would imagine the Falcons were intentionally taking the air out of the ball. Meanwhile, 49ers were trying to just go on the gas. And uh, much like my my crappy car with a bad, uh, bad fuel pump, didn't quite uh, do what you want to when you pounded on that accelerator. Didn't, didn't quite uh, bust a, a serpentine belt like I have at one particular time, but just nothing happened when they were hitting that accelerator. People flashing their lights behind them on the freeway to just speed up, uh, but nothing's happening. It's not their fault, just, you know, they don't have that gear at this point, and they don't have the equipment internally uh, to make that sort of acceleration happen. Did, did my car analogy make any sense? Did the metaphor make any sense? I certainly hope so, because I really just kind of got lost in that one. Uh, I need to fix my car at some point. But either way, uh, both teams just floundered down the stretch. Uh, Niners took a, a long, deep drive into the Falcons' territory. Nice. Uh, in the fourth, but turned it over on downs. Uh, with under three minutes left to ultimately seal it. Arthur Smith continues to defy the odds. The Falcons never trail as they stun the 49ers 28-14 to and improve to 3-3 three and three on the season, getting up to 500, which three wins might be more than some people expected them to get the entire year. I'm not one of them because, like I said, and you can go back and check the receipts on this, I always thought they were going to be a little bit feistier. I didn't think that they would be competing for a playoff spot. I also didn't think the NFC would be as bad as it currently is. But I also didn't think that they were going to be a three-win team. But some people really didn't like him. What a uh, what a job from Arthur Smith so far. Get that man a quarterback. He deserves it. Uh, some notable performances in this one, though, on the Falcons' side. Quarterback Marcus Mariota went 13 of 14, 92.9%. 129 yards, uh, 9.2 yards per attempt. Two touchdowns, no interceptions. Also... Had 50 rushing yards, 8.3 yards per carry, and one touchdown. About what you would consider to be a perfect day for Marcus Mariota. Absolute, I mean, this is why I say Marcus, not Marcus, Arthur Smith is such a great coach because he takes a guy like Marcus Mariota. I think I think Arthur Smith was on that staff that Mariota was still with the, uh, the Titans. I could be wrong. Uh, still, with that said, taking Mariota playing to his strengths, not necessarily putting him in situations to play badly against a very good defense, and he gets three touchdowns, doesn't turn the ball over. This is what Arthur Smith does for a team. Uh, Team rushing, by the way, 168 yards, 4.2 yards per carry, and a touchdown. They absolutely took it to the 49ers. uh, Really took advantage of uh, Nick Boza's absence on the defensive line. Uh, Also, Kyle Pitts scored his first career touchdown, uh, in his NFL career, hopefully first of many. I, I hope he doesn't turn into the, that Julio Jones where he gets 1,400 yards per season but like five touchdowns. That would be a brutal way to see Kyle Pitts go throughout his career. But on the 49ers side, again, defense doesn't matter. Why even include them for some reason? Um, quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo went 29-41, so 70, 70.7%, 296 yards, uh, 7.2 yards per attempt, two touchdowns, but two interceptions, 
and his rushing game did not do him any favors. 50 yards, 3.1 yards per carry, and zero touchdowns. Uh, Brandon Ayuk did have those two touchdowns in the first half. Also had eight receptions and 83 yards to kind of lead the way for the uh, for the 49ers. But otherwise, I mean, really quiet, quiet second half for sure. Uh, quiet game overall. Really only scored in the second quarter. It was a weird offensive game for the 49ers. Uh, really got dominated by the Falcons on both sides of the ball late in this one. I mean. Can't really say the Falcons dominated them on on dominated the defense, I suppose, or the 49ers defense. You know what? I'm just gonna leave that there because it wasn't gonna go to a place that made sense anyhow. Uh, key takeaways from this one: 49ers look like a carbon copy of last year's team. Meaning the problems that kept them out of the Super Bowl have persisted into this season. Great defense, a run game guru in Kyle Shanahan, where you can plug in basically anyone that back there and have success. Uh, a versatile set of weapons in Debo and Brandon Ayuk. Also, George Kittle to boot. Forgot to put him in the notes, but he is worth uh, paying attention to. Obviously, one of the best tight ends in the league. But with Jimmy G as the quarterback, the ceiling is still only so high for this team. They still might be strong enough to, I mean, all around to make it to the, uh, to, oh, Jesus Christ. They still might be strong enough all around to make it a uh, or make a deep conference uh, championship run or something like that. But in all likelihood, they'll run into a defense there that will remind everyone who Jimmy G is. I love the makeup of this roster, and it pains me to say it, but this Niners team just isn't built to win a championship this season. And until they fix the quarterback problems, they're really not going to be a championship built team going forward. Especially since, I mean, we can all agree at this point. There's no way they keep D'Amico Ryans after the season. He was a finalist for the Vikings job, withdrew his own name from consideration there. It seems like probably withdrew his name because the writing was on the wall that he wasn't going to get the job. But at the same time, I've said it many, many times, he was my he was the one I wanted to get the Vikings head coaching job when it was all said and done. So there's some value in that, I suppose. I I feel like you need you need a quarterback in there. That that's the bottom line. That you need a quarterback. That that's the main thing. Jesus Christ. That wasn't that an eloquent take. Just an eloquent take there. Uh, for the Falcons, nothing has changed in my mind. Arthur Smith is still the best coach in the NFC South, and uh, he just proves it over and over and over. End of take. End of story. I mean, that's just what the Falcons are. They might not be a great team, but in the NFC this year. They're probably good enough to uh, make some noise, if nothing else. Maybe good enough to make a playoff spot. Uh, at the very least, probably good enough to uh, match the record they had last year. I believe it was 7-10 and 10 when it was all said and done. Maybe they get into the single-digit losses this year. That would be a good, uh, good outcome for them. Uh, moving on, though, Jets versus Packers. Uh, it was a cagey affair early as neither team was able to generate any semblance of offense. Uh, they battled to a stalemate 3-3 at the half. Things opened up in the third quarter, but not in a way that the Cheesehead faithful would really like, though. Uh, Braxton Berrios ran it in for a 20-yard touchdown to make it 10-3. Then on the ensuing possession, Jets block a, uh, a Pat O'Donnell. almost said P-A-T because I'm not used to Pat actually being a name outside of Mahomes, uh, but I digress. Pat O'Donnell got his punt blocked and returned for a touchdown to jump out to a 17-3 lead for the Jets with 5.43 remaining in the third quarter. Uh, 
Packers were able to score in the next possession to make it seven a seven-point game, but a 34-yard touchdown run by Brees Hall and a field goal in the fourth put the game out of reach for the Packers. The Jets continue their hot streak of play, coming into Lambeau and dominating the Packers 27-10. Don't look now, but the Jets are 4-2 and currently are a game ahead of the Dolphins uh, for second in the AFC East. After the game, Jets rookie corner Sauce Gardner got a cheese hat from somewhere. Not sure if he brought it in on the sidelines with him uh, at the start of the game, just you know, just in case they won in such a way where he could parade around in a cheese head, or just took it from someone in the stands. But either way, he wore it proudly and took a victory, victory lap around Lambeau. Terrible sportsmanship, but with that said, I'm going to need to keep him on my radar going forward because he might be my favorite player of this new generation. I love an irrational confidence guy, and that's exactly what you get in Sauce Gardner. I love anybody who's willing to go into a hostile environment and just do a little Irish jig on the grave of your opponent on the way out after a big win. I mean... Sorry sorry to my mom for the pain that he caused. I'm not necessarily sure you watched that part of the game. I'm sure you'll see it in highlights at some point here. Uh, maybe on whatever Monday night pregame we end up watching. If we end up watching a pregame, I don't know. You guys are probably going to have shows on. Uh, but I digress. I'm not even sure why I'm talking anymore. Uh, either way, just it, it it's just one of those guys... It's also a man who wore an iced-out chain with a diamond-encrusted hot sauce bottle on the end of it to the draft this past spring. Just the unabashed, brazen, and vociferous, uh, how about that for an SAT word, confidence are endlessly entertaining to me, and he is a legit shutdown caliber talent on the outside, so we might have the pleasure of seeing this man a lot over the next decade or so. They have got another good one on the outside in... Uh, in New York. Really, really stuck the landing on that one. Uh, notable performers in this one. Quarterback Zach Wilson went 10 for 18. Uh, 55.6%. Uh, 110 yards. 6.1 yards per attempt. No touchdowns. No interceptions. So, bad game, but didn't kill the team. So, that's a upgrade from last year where he was having bad games that did kill the team. I mean, progress, I suppose. Still not looking great, but progress is progress, I guess. Um, did have a, a good running back behind him, rookie Brees Hall, absolute revelation back there. I kind of, I kind of have a feeling that he would come in and take that starting job fairly early. He had 116 yards, 5.8 yards per carry and one touchdown, including that, uh, that long 35 yard touchdown to, uh, to widen the lead late, uh, defensive tackle Quinn Williams lived up or lived in the backfield all day, rather, excuse me, wrapping up. Two sacks on the day. Also blocked a field goal to tangibly affect the scoreboard. Uh, absolutely going to live in the nightmares of everyone on the Packers side of the field. Both offense and special teams. Maybe not on defense. They didn't necessarily get to see Quinn and Williams Towns uh, on display. That being said, on the Packers side, quarterback Aaron Rodgers went 26 of 41, uh, 63.4%. 246 yards, uh, 6 yards per attempt. One touchdown, no interceptions. That six-yard per attempt, a little too short, though. They needed it to be a bit more, but there's a reason for that. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let's put a pin in it. Uh, team rushing for the Packers at 20 rushes, 60 yards for a robust three yards per carry. No touchdowns on the day. That just will not cut it with how this team is composed for the Packers. On the outside, Allen Robinson led the way with... Uh, 
Well, didn't lead them in receiving per se, but had four receptions, 76 yards, and the one touchdown through the air. Robert Tunyon actually led uh, all receivers with 10 receptions, 90 yards, and a touchdown. Uh, so, not a, not a bad day for the weapons overall. With that said, though, Randall Cobb also went out with an injury in this one. So it's uh, it's worth asking if they have even more problems. I mean, Sammy Watkins went down uh, earlier this season. Who's to, who knows whether he'll ever be back? And if he does come back, I'm sure he'll probably be injured, unfortunately, uh, shortly after he comes back. But uh, I digress. Uh, problems in Packerland as far as the uh, as far as the weapons are concerned. Key takeaways in this one, though, uh, b- between Sauce Gardner and New York and Tariq Woolen in Seattle, this might shape out to be one of the better quarter, not quarterback, cornerback rather classes in recent memory. Really, just defensive back draft. If if you want to expand it out a little bit, and I mean, you think about it. That's before I even mentioned Derek Stingley, who has predictably, predictably evaporated from my memory for much of this season as an inherent side effect of playing for the Texans down in Houston. Also, less publicly known, but the Texans drafted uh, safety Jalen Peter out of uh, Baylor in this uh, in the second round. He has two interceptions already, one more than Stingley has this far this season. They're, they have, they seem to have hit on both of those guys, which is, I mean, good for the Texans going forward. The Texans might not be trying to win this year, but I don't hate some of the individual pieces they got over there. I don't think Davis Mills necessarily is the uh, QB going forward, but he's got some good stuff uh, around him on both sides of the ball. Also... The snake oil salesman appears to be leaving the building as Jack Easterby is reportedly out as executive VP of football ops. You may remember him as the former team chaplain for the Patriots who somehow, and I still have no idea how, uh, weaseled his way into a football ops role by being essentially the spiritual advisor for Texans owner Bob McNair. That's the only thing uh, that I have found that could be a reason as to why he found his way into a football role. I think he tried to weasel his way into doing a similar thing uh, in in the New England building, but Belichick said, uh, "Go fuck yourself and go somewhere else." So got in cozy with uh, with Bob McNair. Bob McNair is not the brightest light bulb in the box. Y- you can look up his bona fides. There, there's a reason he runs the. Uh, I mean, the McNairs are, as a family are a bit of a, a business enterprise. They have a very uh, wealthy group of, of siblings, let's just say. I mean, obviously, the dad made it all happen in the first place. He built the empire. Uh, the one brother whose name escapes me is running the the main business, uh, the one that got all the money for the family, the one that actually takes uh, some good management skill uh, in order to make sure it stays afloat. Meanwhile... Bob is kind of uh, Bob is kind of that guy that uh, you know. I think we all know one or two of these guys. I might I might qualify a little bit to uh, to the certain extent of just you know, uh, rich kids who ended up uh, maybe not working out in a lot of senses, but their parents throw them a bone from time to time. Maybe I don't uh, qualify in that last category, but I digress. Basically, he got put in charge of the NFL team because you can literally put. Uh, a team of 22 starters, all of them being local residents at, at Houston retirement homes, and you would still probably sell out NRG Stadium. You'd probably have a loud atmosphere. You'd lose every single game, but the team would still probably make money, especially since 
uh, there's this thing called a revenue sharing model. Uh, so basically, you can have shit numbers all year in your domestic market, and you still get one ginormous, fat, girthy check from the NFL at the end of the year that just makes everything all better. All that is to say... Bob McNair can be a dog shit owner and they can still make money off the Texans, which is why he's running it and why he has been tricked by uh, Jack Easterby into somehow weaseling his way into a football ops role. Didn't think I would uh, turn that all back around uh, into getting it back on the rails, but <laughs> you'd be mistaken, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a goddamn pro. Uh, either way, bottom line here, classic Machiavellian style courtier, uh, can't really trust Easterby. Maybe now Easterby can finally pursue pursue his true calling by opening up a mega church and becoming the new Kenneth Copeland, uh, Joel Osteen type of guy. I think he could make buku bucks off of just preaching, uh, flying flying jets, uh, robbing poor people of of their money because they think that you have a direct communication with God. I think he could be very very good at that because he seems to be able to just kind of sell anyone on anything. If nothing else, going to make a fantastic car salesman in the uh, in the area of Houston going forward. Uh, with that said, though, man, back to the corner quarterbacks, I suppose. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pat myself on the back. Wow, that was quite a delineation right there. Um, things are looking up in Houston. Uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back yet again, though, and point out that I have loved Tariq Woolen from the, she- from the second he showed up at the Combine and looked like an absolute alien on the field. And he is now tied for the league lead with four interceptions through six weeks. Not going to say I'm a genius talent evaluator here, but you're welcome, Pete Carroll. That's all I got to say. Uh, for the Packers, the prognosis remains unchanged here. You can't. You can grind out wins with ground and pound, uh, playing behind the defense and taking an occasional downfield shot with Rodgers. But when you get to big games, that style can be problematic. You can demolish the Lions. Panthers, Texans, and hey, even the Bears of the world uh, with that strategy probably even get a playoff spot, but that's a style that really only works consistently if you're playing with a lead. When the Packers fall behind like they did on Sunday and have to mount a comeback, Rodgers is still a weapon, but the fact of the matter is he has Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb as his top two receivers, and now Cobb might be out for an extended period of time after being carted off uh, with what appeared to be a foot-ankle sort of injury. Either way, Already on the older side, explosiveness limited. He's going to be even less explosive if and when he does come back. Even more problems there in the receiving core. You can have an Aaron Rodgers in the building and feel like you've got a puncher's chance. But if there's one thing the final few seasons of Brady in New England has taught us, just anecdotally, I think it's very kind of applicable here. It's that at a certain point... The lack of talent on the outside becomes impossible to work around. You saw it with Brady late in his career when he needed more help. He went to the Bucks, and all of a, all of a sudden you saw a three, four-year run, whatever he's had now, where he's been MVP level, Super Bowl caliber for sure. If the Packers don't draft a receiver in the first round of 2023 uh, and or bring in help through free agency, we have to start questioning the Packers' front office strategy here. I will assume the Packers are committed to winning because they're the most football-centric organization in the entire league. The fact that they don't have one centralized owner, their sole, I guess, obligation is to the shareholders and the football side of things. It's not the business side of things for the most part because, I mean, Packers got 
a special, special fan base where they're going to make, I mean, tons and tons of money no matter what, even in uh, a quote-unquote small market there. Just, uh, they're, they're an OG franchise, uh, one of the classic brands, blessed beyond belief. I mean, yada, 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 what more do I have to say? All that is to say, I, I trust that the football, they're, they're more focused on football than just about any other franchise in the entire league, just based on how they're structured. But I also think a lack of overall pressure on the decision makers in the franchise has prevented them from modifying this old, quote, draft receivers in the mid-round and let our QB work his magic strategy. They've been doing the same thing since Favre was in town, and yes, it is a strategy that will basically guarantee 10 wins every single season. There's no denying that skimping on spending for receivers allows the front office to make other parts of the roster much better than they have uh, than they have been otherwise or would have been otherwise. Uh, just look at the defense this past year or the last couple years uh, and the offensive line historically in Green Bay for evidence of that impact. Uh, but there's also a reason they've had a top five quarterback over the last 30 years and have just two rings to show for it. Sometimes you get down into the playoffs and you need a first down there's simply no substitute for having guys on the outside of that beat coverage all on their own. They don't need a quarterback to throw them open. That's why you've seen these improbable upsets over and over in the most pivotal moments of the season. It's not Rodgers' fault, though. Uh, he's not totally innocent of all this, especially after last year's embarrassing playoff exit uh, with probably the best team he's ever had and is ever going to have. They just haven't had a top-level receiving core in a long time. Even with Adams in the building, it was Adams and a bunch of dudes. Um, Adams was really a guy that Rodgers ended up zoning in on at times, too, where he's done that uh, particularly in pivotal moments. I mean, that's a whole different conversation to have, and we can have it if you want, just probably not now because I've already delineated too many times in this podcast. Bottom line here is, though, that the Packers have built a franchise. It's made to win games in the regular season, but... If they want to truly make meaningful runs at a championship, they need to start building with an eye on winning in the playoffs and winning championships. Not 10 wins in the regular season. That's awesome. That'll that'll do great things for you. It'll keep you in your position. Keep the fans fat and happy at the end of the day. Draft polish receivers, not developmental projects high in the draft. And I repeat, not developmental projects. They've been drafting wide receivers higher, but... Spending a second-round draft pick on a player with next-to-no route tree like Christian Watson this past season isn't an objective waste for this year. He's not a guy that you expect to contribute. At this point, he's a glorified, okay, you run one route, okay, maybe two routes. He runs a, uh, a deep post and uh, a nine route where you just run straight at the, at the corner, and he has elite speed, so he can maybe get past the defense and get you one. But at the end of the day... Only thing he does for you is he threatens on the jet sweeps. He lets you know whether they're in zone and man based on those jet motions. And he can be a deep threat for you. That, that's all he does. He's a rotational level wide receiver at this point. He's not a difference maker right away like you saw uh, Jamar Chase. Hell, even a T. Higgins at this point stepped in and was clear-cut number one receiver before Jamar Chase got there. Clear-cut number two that now that Jamar Chase is there. And that's just not someone that, that the Packers have ever had. They never had a legit kind of number two sort of receiver. It's always been a dazzling sort of number one, maybe, and then a couple rotational level guys. I'd like to see that change. And I mean, not, not saying that Christian Watson won't turn out better in the long run. Hell, maybe he turns into a hell of a player. He certainly has the physical frame for it, being whatever he is, 6'5", running a 
sub 4-4-40. If he can ever run a route tree, I assume he's got the hands playing wide receiver. He should be able to be a very good receiver in the long run. It's just something where he's not going to contribute immediately. You need guys who can step in and make an immediate difference, not in a few years, right now. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. Not anything the, the the Packers can fix this year, but I'm hoping hoping to see Brian Gutekunst uh, come out there and draft with a purpose going forward. Get Rodgers talented weapons. Bring in someone in, in free agency. Bring in a high draft pick, but you got to do something different than what you've been doing. You're doing better, but you got to just go all in while you still got Aaron Rodgers playing at the height, not not the height of his powers, but still have Aaron Rodgers playing very good football. You're not going to have that for much longer. You have to strike while the iron is hot right now. But with that, uh, let's move on to the Ravens versus Giants. This is another one where there's a reason why I hated all of the favorites this week on the Vegas lines. I believe the Ravens were favored coming into this one by five and a half or something like that. This, this was a great week to bet underdogs, folks. There, Like I said, there was a reason why I hated every single line last week is because they were all rat lines, and this was one of them. Um, Ravens, Giants, Vegas, for some reason, tried to fool people into thinking the Ravens were going to win by a good margin. That is not what happened at all. This was back and forth all day. Uh, Kenyon, Kenyon Drake, I mean, came back from the dead. At one point, I had him on my fantasy team, and he scored negative points for me, so that's that's fun that he's back and doing things now instead of when he was on my team, but I digress. Uh, no one cares about your fantasy team, Caleb. All right, Caleb. Uh, Kenyon Drake rushed for a 30-yard touchdown to take or kick off uh, take oh Jesus Christ I really fucked up the uh really fucked up the outlining there but to kick off the scoring Kenyon Drake scored a 30-yard touchdown was that so hard ladies and gentlemen no it was not in the second quarter then Daniel Jones answered right back with a pass to rookie wide receiver Wandale Robinson for his first career touchdown to tie things up at seven uh Justin Tucker hit a field goal to give the Ravens a lead going into halftime 10-7 uh and it looked like the Ravens might win comfortably when Lamar Jackson hit Mark Andrews in the end zone to make it 20 to 10 with just under 13 left to play but the Giants came storming back however Daniel Jones led them down the field and threw a touchdown to Daniel Bellinger fellow Daniel uh totally uncommon white boy name to make it 20 to 17 then Lamar Jackson threw a critical pick which set up Saquon Barkley to run in the go-ahead touchdown with 143 remaining to make it 24 to 20. Lamar Jackson once again on the very next possession made a crucial mistake losing the ball on a strip sack to seal the win for the Giants and who else would it be? Kayvon Thibodeau immediate impact after being drafted high by the Giants last year coming in I believe that might have been his first career sack and what a time to do it. Coming in, sealing the game for the Giants. Brian Dayball improves to 4-1 and one in his impressive first season as a head coach as the Giants win 24-20. to 20. I reiterate once again. Uh, notable performers in this one, Giants quarterback J Daniel Jones uh, went 19-27. Just over 70% completion. Uh, 173 yards, 6.4 yards per attempt. Two touchdowns, no interceptions. Did lose a fumble, but what else is new? Daniel Jones 
he might get rid of the interceptions, but I, I refuse to believe that he's ever going to stop fumbling the ball. That's just who he is uh, as a player. Just something you're going to have to live with if he is your quarterback. Part of the reason why he's not a long-term starter in the end, but I digress. Behind him, Saquon Barkley. Not, not his patented great game that he's been having over and over again this season thus far, but he did have 83 yards, 3.8 yards per carry. One touchdown, also three receptions, 12 yards. 95 total yards from scrimmage, so not great, but also pretty solid on the day overall. So can't complain with what you got out of over. Ooh, ooh, words are hard. Can't complain out of what you got from Saquon. Uh, wide receiver Wandale Robinson. Not really a whole lot happening uh, on the outside for anyone for the Giants, but he did have three receptions for 37 yards and a touchdown. His first NFL touchdown uh, to lead the way for the Giants. Maybe he'll provide a bit of a spark on the outside that they simply have not had. Not sure there's a single team in the league. Say, hell, even the even the, um, even the Bears have Darnell Mooney out there, so they've at least got one guy that, that threatens you on the outside. The Giants are just, whew. Man, it is the, the cupboard is bare out there. Uh, that is one thing they'll have to go in the offseason and address for damn sure. Uh, and, of course, Kayvon Thibodeau got his first career sack. So, of course, in, in the most pivotal moment he could possibly do it. He is a showman, so not surprising on that front. Um, on the Ravens side, quarterback Lamar Jackson had himself a rough day. 17-32, so just over 60, uh, not over, over 50%, uh, 210 yards, 6.6 yards per attempt. One touchdown, one interception. Did had 77 rushing yards on 11 yards per carry, but that's kind of, you, you kind of expect that from Lamar Jackson. Not a great day overall, and of course had a pivotal fumble late to seal the game for the Giants. Um, running back Kenyon Drake had 119 yards, 11.9 yards per carry, one touchdown, and Mark Andrews had seven receptions for 106 yards and a touchdown in this one. What a game for the Giants. Uh, key takeaways in this one, I think it's pretty clear, but uh, if the Giants get into the playoffs this year, Brian Dayball is going to win Coach of the Year by a landslide. No question in my mind. I'm sure that's not really going out on a, on a limb there, but... People need to start saying it now, and I'm going to get uh, ahead of this one before people hop on the train. This is one of the more non, or one of the better non-Belichick uh, coaching jobs uh, that I can remember seeing so far this season, and that's for all coaches, let alone uh, a head coach, a rookie head coach like Brian Dayball. The way he has worked around his team's weaknesses and played into their strengths, the brilliance of how he and Joe Shane built the coaching staff, the clear-headed and decisive situational decision, that's the most impressive thing. I think the Giants have got themselves a brain trust in Joe Shane and Brian Dayball. Uh, they can just give them the reins and trust for the next several years, five, ten years maybe. I think it's probably one of those you reevaluate re after three Definitely after five, because I think that's probably the length of the contract. Pretty standard length uh, for uh, for front offices in in general. I feel like this is just a, a hell of a, of a situation they got going. A lot like Arthur Smith down in Atlanta. Get the, get the ball a QB, and this rig is about to get rolling. No no disrespect to Daniel Jones. I think he's going to make a, a very good transitional quarterback for whoever they end up drafting, but. Bottom line here, they didn't draft him. Joe Shane and uh, and Brian Dayball didn't draft him. You had to see what you had in him this season, but I think you've seen enough to see that he is not a long-term starter. He can get you to the next guy uh, relatively clean, but 
that it's not who you want in there uh, in, in a long-term plan. But I think the way that he has worked around Daniel Jones' deficiencies this year is even more to the point that this is Coach of the Year material in my book. Arthur Smith right up there for Coach of the Year as well in this one. Uh, but from there, we move on to uh, Sunday Night Football. Cowboys versus Eagles, a pivotal Early season game in the NFC East. No longer the NFC leases. They got a very good uh, top three over there. Uh, sorry, commies, just not your year. Never is, though, is it? Uh, Cowboys had a chance to steal a game on the road and pull even for the division lead at the Eagles. That, however, is not how this one went at all. In fact, it went how uh, a lot of the Eagles games have gone this season. Bit of a pattern so far. An explosion early uh, and suffocating defense to close out the game. Uh, as was the theme for most of the games this week, it started out slow with neither team scoring in the first quarter, but the second opened with an onslaught from the Eagles. First, they scored a touchdown on a long drive, capped by a Miles Sanders run. Uh, Cooper Rush threw an interception on the first play of the subsequent drive. Then, the Eagles scored another touchdown on back-to-back-to-back possessions to make it 14-0 in a hurry, right out of the gates. That's before he even got uh, five minutes into the second quarter there. Then, they capitalized on an ill-advised fourth down called deep in Cowboys territory by... uh, Oh, Kellen Moore, that's the offensive coordinator for the Cowboys. Then got a second Cooper Rush interception. I believe that one was by Darius Slay uh, to get a pair of field goals and make it a 20-0 to score. Cowboys did stem the bleeding right before half to make it uh, kick a field goal and make it 20-3 to at the break. From there, however, the patented Cowboys defense did come alive. They do have possibly a defensive player of the year candidate, Micah Parsons, back there, and uh, he was all over him in the third quarter. Uh, They held the Eagles scoreless in the third quarter with Cooper Rush uh, leading the offense to two straight touchdown drives to make it 20-17 at the very beginning of the fourth quarter. They weren't perfect, however. On the on, on the ensuing possession, Jalen Hurts led the drive of the game, taking the Eagles on a seven-minute, thirty-seven long, thirty-seven-second long drive, uh, capped by a seven-yard touchdown to Devontae Smith to make it a two-score game. Then, on the ensuing possession, safety, uh, who they acquired from the Saints in the preseason, C.J. Gardner Johnson came up big once again grabbing his second interception of the day to essentially seal the game for the Eagles. Cowboys put together another solid drive late to make it kind of sort of interesting, but missed the field goal to cement uh, the final result. Eagles handled their bitter division rivals 26-17 to stay undefeated and retain sole possession of first place in the division conference and the league as a whole, 6-0 on the season. Some notable performers in this one on the Eagles side. First off, because we talk about winners first, as they deserve to be talked about. Uh, first off, Jalen Hurts, 15-25. 60% completion. Um... 155 yards. 6.2 yards per attempt. Two touchdowns. No interceptions. Um... Didn't have a great rushing day. Uh, not So not the, uh, the average Jalen Hurts. 27 rushing yards. 3.2 zero yards per carry. I think I'm done talking binary now so we can get back into human speak. But solid day, not not solid at all actually, but this is what we call a down day from Jalen Hurts. And on a down day like this, still didn't turn the ball over once. And that is that is what Jalen Hurts brings to the table that is so special. Usually it's like it's a ho-hum sort of thing when a quarterback doesn't turn the ball over. It's the one thing up until this game that uh that Cooper Rush did so well for the Cowboys up until this point. 
but Jalen Hurts does it as such a prolifically low rate that it is actually special how he does not turn the ball over. He's got two interceptions so far in six games this year, and those are the only turnovers of the entire season. Still putting together a brilliant, brilliant season. He's showing you why he's so improved and why he has been he, what, what kind of special attributes he's had from the very start uh, with the way he's played in this game uh, alone, even in a down game, able to keep the team afloat at the end of the day and win comfortably. Running back Miles Sanders didn't have the, the most efficient game like we've expected from him thus far, but 71 rushing yards, just short of four yards per carry, and a touchdown to lead the way in that department. Uh, wide receiver A.J. Brown led the way on the outside, five receptions, 67 yards, and a touchdown. Wide receiver Devontae Smith had a bit of a similar stat line, uh, 20 less yards, 44 to be exact, but still had five receptions and a touchdown. I mean, that, that, that tandem I talked about in the preseason, but there's no understating just how well they complement each other, just how well they play to each other's strengths. Just what A.J. Brown being added to this offense and Devontae Smith coming into his own has done for what this offense is on the whole. Man, I love what the Eagles have done uh, putting this together. Howie Roseman, I say once again, I've said it before, uh, I probably need to be louder about this, but... Just look at the history of Howie Roseman, how many times he has come on the brink of being fired, on the brink of being run out of town, all the controversy around him, all that has happened around the Eagles franchise over the year with, with him at the helm. Tell me there's not a guy where you can get, you could get a seven season series out of just the career of how Howie Roseman as a GM. HBO, I'm telling you right now, if you want your next like winning time sort of series, just look into what uh, look into what uh, Howie Roseman has done with the Eagles, and you got it right there, right there, ladies and gentlemen. There is just so much happening. Um, that is my. I'm not a Hollywood producer, but if I were, that's the show I would make right there. Uh, outside of that, though, I digress. Safety C.J. Gardner Johnson was the star of the day on defense. He came up with two big ints on Cooper Rush to bring his season total to three. Quarterback, not quarterback, cornerback Darius Slay, the quarterback of the defense, some might say, uh, also got his third interception of the season in the first half. Um, Eagles lead the league with 14 forced turnovers this season uh, and a turnover differential of plus 12, which is eight better than the Vikings, who are the next best at plus four. Insane, probably the most insane stat for the Eagles this season might also indicate that what they're doing might, might, might fall back to the mean at some point, but... They've got an absolute championship uh, caliber makeup of this team. I love it. I love it. I love it. That being said, moving on to the Cowboys side of things. Cooper Rush, below 50% in this one, 18 to 38, 181 yards, below five yards per attempt, which would be great rushing average. 4.8 would be a great yards per carry average as a yards per pass average. Not going to cut it. One touchdown, three interceptions. Uh, Cooper Rush showed you what you needed to see if you were a delusional Cowboys fan. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, running back Zeke Elliott had 81 yards, 6.2 yards per carry, and one touchdown. Uh, probably a little bit easier to run the ball when you were down by 20, though. Just saying. Uh, wide receiver C.D. Lamb led the way for the Cowboys on the outside. Uh, five receptions, 68 yards, no touchdowns, but uh, provided that consistent threat on the outside. And a little defensive player of the year watch. Micah Parsons failed to record a sack, but still has got six in, in as many games. 
uh, and his presence was palpable in that comeback stretch. He ended with seven tackles, one tackle for loss, and uh, two passes defense. Another signature versatile performance that just made things chaotic for the Eagles, particularly in the third quarter, made it hell for them in the second half, uh, allowed the, the, the Cowboys to make it a little bit interesting down the stretch there. Uh, key takeaways, though, before I get into the Eagles slurp fest, say it with me, folks. There is not a quarterback controversy in Dallas. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Jerry? Did did that get through to you at this point? I, I hope your 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 endless well of optimism has run dry at this point on uh, Cooper Rush so you can get back into reality. Uh, not sure we really learned anything about either of these teams, but this one put to bed any notion that Cooper Rush might be a better option than Dak going forward. If you were a smart football fan, you didn't think that in the first place, but you know, sometimes you need a good reminder to just let everyone know what the pecking order is and just avoid drama before it even really comes to the surface. He's a great QB to have as a backup. If he's going up against a middle-of-the-road defense, you can win a lot of games by just playing behind Micah Parsons and the boys and having Cooper Rush there to just not kill you, not shoot your foot off with a shotgun. But this game showed loud and clear for everybody out there that did not already understand that if he has to go up against an elite ball-hawking secondary like the Eagles with James Bradbury, C.J. Gardner-Johnson, Darius Slay, he'll get absolutely eaten alive like we saw in this one. That's not to say Dak would have definitely fared better, but he's... He has natural skills and talent that Cooper Rush simply doesn't possess and never will possess. There are things that you cannot learn and cannot put into your game. Dak's got a better arm, better accuracy, goes through the reads faster, is more of a game changer than what Cooper Rush is in the passing game. Just bottom line there, I'm not breaking any news here. Dak Prescott is a better quarterback than Cooper Rush. You have a puncher's chance with Dak in the game last night, and you don't really have a snowball's chance in hell with Cooper Rush in there. Again, I think Cooper Rush is an absolute asset to have as a backup. I think he should be there for the next decade. I think Jerry Jones needs to fork over the money so that you have him as an insurance policy back there. But let's not start fooling ourselves into thinking he's something he's not. All right, and this game was a good reminder of that. I'll leave it at that. As far as the Eagles are concerned, they have clearly separated themselves as the second best team in football in my mind. With all respect to the Chiefs, I think Pat Mahomes and the offense have just about everyone short of the Bills beat in the NFL, but the defense and the running game are what separate the Eagles in my mind. Between the the defensive line that is deep as as it's been since the, the Super Bowl run in 2018 and the secondary that's forcing turnovers at an alarming rate this season. They are at head and shoulders uh, above what the, the, the Chiefs defense is putting out there in just about every single phase of the game. I mean, you look at up front might be uh, might be a push between the uh, between the, the Chiefs and, uh, and actually, no, I think that the Eagles might have a stronger front overall. I mean, Chris Jones Chris Jones and, and I guess D Ford is D Ford still there? Nope, he's with the uh, with the 49ers there. Whoever the whoever the, the the Chiefs have, maybe it is D Ford. I don't know. I'm really just just exposing my lack of knowledge there. That being said, Eagles got guys for days back there, and they just rotate them in over and over and over on that side. So I think they got an, an edge there. Certainly, well, I think mm, might be a push in the linebackers department. I think the Eagles have some explosive linebackers, but the Chiefs still have some good linebackers in their own respect. And the secondary, 
I mean, no contest there. The Eagles are just better top to bottom in that respect. They got better players at every single position in the secondary, in my opinion. On the offensive side, Eagles are undeniably less explosive. There's no way around that. But they have a much better running attack than the Chiefs. And as evidenced by the turnover differential, Jalen Hurts simply does not turn the ball over. Talked about it earlier in this little analysis, so I won't harp on that too, too much. They've had two interceptions all season and zero loss fumbles, which is even more impressive when you consider just how often they run the ball. I mean, you've got a lot of running backs back there, and for not one of them to have lost a fumble so far, that is impressive and they were just as good last year at doing that a credit to Nick Sirianni and how he has coached this team for them not to turn over the ball basically at all when they've had the ball that much in a position to possibly turn it over there's a reason this team seems to follow the same script every single week get out to an early lead and suffocate you down the stretch it's because now with A.J. Brown added into the mix and Devontae Smith coming into his own The Eagles can be explosive when they need to be and suck the air out of the building to close teams out when they need to as well. They have a much better ball control play play style than either the Bills or the Chiefs for that matter, which is why in the absence of Josh Allen at quarterback, I've got them clearly slotted in as that number two team in the league this year. This might be recency bias with the Chiefs losing yesterday, but to me, the Eagles clear-cut top to bottom, second best roster in the league, second best team in the league, certainly the best in the NFC right now. They're going to run away with the one seed, it looks like, down the stretch. We'll have to see. I mean, they already beat the Cowboys once. Have to see if anyone else in the division has anything else to say about it. But with that, let us uh, let, let us hit the gas as well down the stretch here, get into some quick hits. Uh, Patriots versus Browns. This one... Uh, this is one that, that I think everyone except Vegas could see from a mile away. The Browns were some, for some reason favored, I guess, as a, as a home guy, not a home guy, a tall home team against the Patriots who are out there starting quarterback. You probably have to favor them, but the uh, Patriots were going to win this one. The Browns have the worst rush defense in the league, and that's the cornerstone that, that this Patriots offense was built around. Also, you've got Jacoby Brissett going head-to-head with Belichick, which was never going to work out well for for the Browns. I mean, Steve Belichick making the weirdest faces in the world. Still, he just stays making dumbass faces at the worst possible times. Uh, Just dialing it up and making Jacoby Brissett's life hell back there. Uh, As a result, Patriots got out to a lead early and only built on it throughout the day. This one never really got close as the Patriots beat the brakes off the Browns. 37-15. 37-15. to 15. Best performer in this one was Patriots running back Ramondre Stevenson, who has taken over the full-time responsibilities in the backfield now that Damian Harris is out. He had 76 yards, four yards, for, four yards per carry, uh, and two touchdowns on the ground. Up next, we have got Saints-Bengals. Uh, these guys and, or this game, and the Jags-Colts, who we'll talk about in just a second, probably the most entertaining games not to be included in the major matchups portion of the program, but is a, is a tight cut, and I talk way too goddamn much, way too goddamn much rather, uh, stumbling over my words the entire time apparently. So I can only put so many matchups in the uh, in the in the notable matchup section. But I digress. Here I am uh, bloviating once again. Uh, Probably the most entertaining matchup not to be included in the major matchups portion. Like I said, it looked like the Saints were going to shove it in the face of the line makers in Vegas once again as Will Lutz, a Will Lutz field goal in the middle of the third gave them a 23-14 lead. But that's when Jamar Chase show started right up. First, he caught a touchdown at the end of the third to make it 23-21. Then, 
as they crossed the two-minute warning, Burrow connected with Chase on an electric 60-yard touchdown pass to stun the Saints and take the lead. And that was all she wrote. Saints losing a heartbreaker to a host of former iconic LSU players, 30-26. to Brutal lose like that. Even more brutal for Chase and Burrow. With Burrow, by the way, walking into the stadium in Jamar Chase's national championship-worn jersey to be the ones to inflict that sort of pain on the Saints fans. That's a special type of cruel right there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Saints end up winning this one. Sorry, Bengals end up winning this one 30-26. Best performer in this one was Joe Cool, Joe Burrow. He went 38-37, 75.7%. 300 yards flat. 8.1 yards per attempt, four total touchdowns, three through the air, one on the ground with zero turnovers to show for. That is efficiency, if I've ever seen it, ladies and gentlemen. Just another another bad game for that Saints defense that gives up another 30-plus point performance. Also, honorable mention to Jamar Chase, who had those two game-changing touchdowns. He, on the whole, went for seven receptions, 132 yards, and those two touchdowns. One of the best receivers in the league and a special connection that he has with Joe Burrow there. Maybe the only quarterback that he will ever have uh, in his entire career. Uh, Outside of that, though, I digress. Thursday night. Boy, was this a disgusting game. Commies versus Bears. Uh, No matter who wins, the viewing public loses. And I wrote that statement before the game even started. And boy, was that prophetic. Uh, I didn't think it could get any more abysmal than Broncos versus Colts, but the commies and bears said, imagine a game, imagine a world even, with even less competent play. Uh, In the Broncos versus Colts game, it was a lot of missed open passes and QBs getting killed. This time it was the quarterbacks getting killed Uh, Justin Fields doing the Justin Fields thing where he shows some dazzling talent, uh, throws beautiful balls, then makes god-awful plays, missing the easiest throws of all time. And Carson Wentz doing his thing, shaking his hand around in weird ways, looking like a glove filled with hot water, just shaking it around, shaking his hand around. Um, He just assumes every pass is supposed to go 20 plus yards. Uh, We had even worse QB play, which led to terrible, terrible offense. And by the way, Carson Wentz played the entire game with a broken finger, which he just had surgery on. I believe he's either having surgery on today when this comes out or today whenever I record it. Either way, today he's having surgery. Which today? That's for you to find out and for me me to be lazy and not look it up. But I digress on that front. Um... Not not a good day for either team, but someone had to end up winning. Not a point was scored in this game until Joey Sly kicked a field goal put, to put the commies up 3-0 in the final moments of the first half. Justin uh, Justin Fields passed touchdown uh, to Devontae, not Devontae Pettis, Dante Pettis, I believe, put them up 7-3, but Velas Jones uh, muffed a punt, gave the commies the ball inside the 10. Brian Robinson scored a touchdown uh, two plays later to go up. 12 to 7. Uh, I guess they missed a two-point conversion or something like that. 721 remaining. Score 12-7. And uh just didn't didn't deign it necessary to go ahead and uh finish up the highlight on this one. So I'll I'll finish it up just kind of winging it off the cuff. Uh no one did shit down the stretch. Um I went to bed early because it was a bad game and I was very, very tired. And um Bapa Final score 12-7. 
Uh, may God have mercy on all of our souls that had to watch this. Best performer in this one, of course, it was a defender. Uh, Jonathan Allen led the way for the Red Menace. Uh, that was the commie defense. He had a sack and caught a crucial INT that Justin Fields rifled off the helmet of a defensive lineman. I believe it was Deron Payne that he just absolutely headshotted. That's extra points in Call of Duty right there. I mean, Kyler Murray was hyped watching that shit at home. Uh, bad shot putter, Jonathan Allen. Great, uh, great at the game of football. Not sure if I've told anyone on this podcast, but might as well, I mean, to my own horn while I'm in the area. I mean, I beat Jonathan Allen back in high school in shot put direct head-to-head in competition only went up against him once but did beat him in shot put. he beat me in discus but i beat him in shot put, which arguably as a 180 pound skinny ass white boy should not happen when you are a, i believe he was like 240 pound uh defensive lineman freak back then way stronger than i was just saying i was better than jonathan allen in high school he's now much more rich than i am and uh only a few years older so who's the joke on now i suppose but with that said and on that uplifting note let's move on to the vikings dolphins shall we uh most interesting battle in this game was the battle between the vikings and the elements as the patented early season home field advantage for the Dolphins was on full display early, and I would imagine as global warming progresses, that's only gonna—it's only gonna get even more intense as the uh, as the years go on. Here, at one point, it was over 120 degrees in the Vikings sideline compared to being below 90 on the Dolphins side. It was absolutely hot as hell, and you got to think about it. This is a Minnesota team that's used to one playing indoors, two. They're based in St. Paul, Minnesota or something like that. It's not like they're they're used to this oppressive level of humidity and heat. I mean, that's a, that's a weapon for Miami in the early season that's just very underrated. Made it much more difficult uh, for the Vikings in this one. That made it a little bit closer in the first half. Probably closer than it should have been as Miami led 3-0 until a flurry at the end of the half saw the Vikings go into the break up 10-3. Then a pair of fourth quarter touchdowns, one on a long touchdown drive capped by a Thielen TD, the other coming on a game ceiling run by Dalvin Cook over a 50-yard touchdown run, put this one out of reach, uh, making it a 24-10 game with just over three minutes remaining. The Dolphins scored a touchdown late to make it look a little bit more respectable, but the Vikings defense handled business in this one, got the uh, onside kick on the ensuing kick, really ended the drama before it really even started. Vikings grind their way to a 16 to 10, well not 16 to 10, that's definitely wrong. Uh 24 to 16 win over a shorthanded Dolphins squad to improve to 4 and 1 and take a comfortable lead in the NFC North. I believe they are now what two games ahead of the Packers. Feeling good right now in the NFC North. It is nice, but you know a lot of games left to play. Best performer in this one, Justin Jefferson. Didn't get a touchdown, but six receptions, 107 yards for a very productive day on the whole. Next up, we have got Panthers versus the Rams. Uh, this one went pretty much exactly how you would expect. I stayed away in the gambling department because it was a 10.5 spread, uh, and you never know what kind of bump a team is going to get when they turn into turn to an interim head coach, but it ended up being a wash down the stretch. Looked like I had been wise to stay away early in this game as Panthers mucked it up in the first half and capped it off with a uh, Dante Jackson pick six to make it 10-7 heading into halftime. But then the Packers came back to earth, Panthers came back to earth rather. Uh, 
They failed to score any points in the second half while the Rams scored 17 unanswered to end the game. Rams have, have the get-right game they were looking for, crushing the Panthers 24-10 to get back to 500 on the season and get to, I believe they're tied for the division lead at 3-3 three three, uh, in that tough, tough NFC West. The most interesting thing that happened all game here was Robbie Anderson getting into a, a screaming match with the interim head coach Steve Wilkes before Wilkes sent him home for the day, booted him off the sidelines. He got ejected by his own coach. You don't see that every day. Uh, and, of course, in poetic fashion, Panthers traded Anderson two time zones away to Arizona uh, less than 24 hours after the game ended. So, hey, they did not want him around anymore. He had worn out his welcome. Felt like the writing was on the wall there uh, with everything that was going down in you know, all the noise that Robbie Anderson has had around him since he's gotten to town. I'll just, I'll just put it that way. It's not unwarranted noise, but it's a whole lot of noise nonetheless, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, best performers in this one, it was wide receiver Allen Robinson with his best game as a Ram thus far. He had five receptions, 63 yards, and a touchdown to lead the way in this uh, comfortable win for the Rams. Get-right game that they sorely needed. Uh, the other great game that was not, uh, didn't quite make the cut for the most notable matches because... I mean, it's the Jags versus Colts. Pretty pretty self-explanatory there. What am I going to talk about that people want to listen to on that one? Anyways, classic interdivisional struggle that came right down to the wire. It started out looking like the Jags might have a repeat performance from the first matchup between these teams this year when Jamichael Hasty broke off a 61-yard touchdown run to make it 14-3 early in the second, but the Colts held strong. A touchdown from Matt Ryan to Paris Campbell and a Chase McLaughlin uh, field goal made it 14-13 to at the half. They were one point away from tying this thing up. Let's just jump to the fourth, shall we, where we had a spectacular exchange of drives. First, the Colts took their first lead of the game with a Jelani Woods touchdown to make it 26-21. to Failed a two-point conversion to make it a seven-point game, though. Then, the Jags answer right back with probably the most impressive drive of the game, 18 plays, 84 yards, 10 minutes off the clock, capped by a Trevor Lawrence touchdown pass to Christian Kirk to put the Jags up one point, 27 to 26, another failed two-point conversion, I do believe, on that one with 244 remaining. And finally, on the ensuing possession, Matt Ryan came in clutch, lived up to the Matty Ice name, hit a dagger to rookie Alec Pierce for a 32-yard strike for a touchdown, 17 seconds on the clock. A two-point conversion from Philip Lindsay made it a 34 to 27 game, and that's the score that ended up at. Colts hold on to win an absolute barn burner, 34 to 27, to even the season the season series on on the uh, well, I guess on the season they've already played two games thus far, the, with the Jags, one one. Also, the Jags are now two and four, so maybe they're they're not the best team in the AFC South, like I may or may not have asserted previously, just two weeks prior. How uh, how two weeks makes such a difference? But I digress once again. Best performer of the game, obviously, Matt Ryan, who set the franchise record and career high for completions with 42. Went 42 of 58, 72.4% completion, uh, 389 yards. So he somehow still wasn't able to get over 7 yards per attempt, 6.7 yards per attempt on the day. Three touchdowns and zero interceptions. So that's the big That's the big stat. You throw it 58 times and don't turn the ball over. That's a success, in my opinion. Wide receiver Michael Pittman was the biggest benefactor 
yarder for the Colts through the air. He had 13 receptions, 134 yards, and no touchdowns on the day. And finally, we end off with the Cardinals at the Seahawks. Why Vegas had the Cardinals favored on the road in this one after the terrible performances they've continued to put up this season, I may never know. Not to mention James Conner is out with an injury, so they got Eno Benjamin starting in the backfield. Not a whole lot of good was going on for the Cardinals coming into this one yet. Hey, I guess Vegas still thinks the Seahawks are that team that we thought they were coming into the year. That's not the case, guys. We should probably adapt accordingly, all right? But big-time field goal fest uh, as neither team really generated a great deal of offense. Uh, but it felt like that's exactly what the, the way that the, uh, the Seahawks wanted to go in this one. Special teams mishaps made this uh, an interesting one as Chris Banjo recovered a blocked punt for a touchdown to make it 12-9, make it a little bit interesting late. But a dagger touchdown by rookie Kenneth Walker on the ensuing possession put this one out of reach for a beleaguered cards offense that didn't get a single thing going all day pretty much. Kyler Murray ran over 100 yards, but it just was not enough. Seahawks win in a slot fest 19-9 to to get back to 500 on the year. Best performer in this one, mentioned him there briefly, but Kenneth Walker, his first start post-Rashad Penny's uh, broken leg, he had over 100 yards from scrimmage, 97 yards uh, and 4.6 yards per carry and a touchdown on the ground. Two receptions, 13 yards through the air for a total of, I believe that is... 110 yards from scrimmage. That's Mathsby. Uh, he's got a legit chance to put up offensive rookie of the year numbers in the absence of an impressive rookie quarterback out there this season. He's got, I mean, he's going to take the bulk of the snaps going forward. He's going to be a workhorse in that backfield, especially with what Pete Carroll wants to do. Probably going to have over a thousand yards rushing as a rookie. Might have over 10, uh, 10 rushing touchdowns as well. He's going to have a strong, strong case for Offensive Rookie of the Year when it's all said and done. Something to keep an eye on for uh, Seahawks rookie Kenneth Walker. There, They might have both Rookies of the Year with Tariq Woolen being tied for the league lead in interceptions on the other side of the ball while Kenneth Walker coming into his own in that rushing game. That is something to watch for the Seahawks going forward. I've said it before. I'll say it again. That is the situation you want to come into if you are a young QB in the upcoming NFL draft. Uh, with that said, that wraps up I mean, so far what we have for uh, for week six, still got the Monday night football game to look forward to. And once again, either awesome game, love to watch it, um, terrible game, waste of all of our time, or hey, that was certainly a football game on a Monday night, wasn't it? Um, one of those reactions was the correct correct reaction, I suppose. Um, but let, let's look at some notable week seven matchups, shall we? Looking ahead, we've got on Thursday night, Saints versus Cardinals. Slightly less disgusting than the uh, the run of matchups we've had here recently. I think there are at least be some points scored. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins is back from his PED suspension. You have Hollywood Brown going on IR with an injury on today as I'm recording this, but you trade for Robbie Anderson, you get DeAndre Hopkins back from his PED suspension, and all of a sudden, they go from having a problem on the outside to being pretty much loaded in the course of just a week. Now they get to face a Saints defense that has not been... Uh, the immovable force that I expected them to be coming into this year. The that, that secondary has been gettable, to say the least. Joe Burrow torched them this past week at home, and now they're going to have to go on the road on a Thursday night game. Not looking good for them in this one. This one might be a sneaky overplay. We'll check back in, in on that one on Thursday's episode. There is obviously a Thursday night bet that I do have to fill in on that pick pentathlon that we are starting to get hot. Had a winning record this week, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, didn't check that. Just going to assume that was correct. So, like to live on the edge. That's all I got to say. Uh, moving on, though, another 
notable matchup this week. Maybe not, I mean, really wasn't anything you would have looked at preseason and said, yeah, that, that's something I want to uh something I want to want to get into, right? I mean, it's Seahawks versus Chargers, not a sexy matchup, but hey, Seahawks are right there with everyone else for the division lead. They're tied that three and three. This could be an opportunity to get over 500 and take the lead in the division with the Rams on by and the Niners facing the Chiefs this week. They get the four and three. They could very easily be in the lead in the division come the end of week seven, which who the hell would have thought that? That's another uh, viable, viable uh, candidate for head coach of the year. Um, not Brian Dayball. Just, just talked about him being a coach of the year candidate. Pete Carroll with what he has done, trading away Russell Wilson, just doing an Irish jig on his grave on the way out the door saying emphatically that we don't need you to win. And in fact, you were the hindrance that kept us from winning in the past. No one would have thought that. I didn't think that coming in. I thought the Chiefs, not the Chiefs, the, uh, the Seahawks were going to be a bona fide uh, top 10 pick this year, no matter what, when it was all said and done. Uh, but... This should be a very good matchup. A sneaky overplay, though. Vegas, I just looked at it before this. I think they got the line set at like 52, 53 points. So they're ahead of this. They're they're ahead of the curve more than I am. Probably already uh, took the value out of the overplay on that one just based on what the Seahawks have been this season and what the Chargers have been on offense this year. But that should be a fun NFC West matchup between the Chargers and the Seahawks next week at... Uh, Fuck, which, which, uh, I don't remember which stadium the, uh, the, the Chargers play in, but you get it. SoFi? I don't know. The, the link? Definitely not the link, but, but either way. Uh, up next, we got the Chiefs versus 49ers. Speaking of which, speaking of those pesky little 49ers, this is going to be a big time test of just how much that defense can carry that Niners team, uh, against a playoff competition and a playoff offense at that. Probably the best one in the entire league. Let's see how they do against Pat Mahomes. And that nightmare coalition of weapons that they have on the outside and Marquez Valdez, Scantling, Juju Smith-Schuster, uh, Nicole Hardman, who scored a touchdown in this last one. Oh, and by the way, just probably the greatest tight end of all time, Travis Kelsey catching passes from probably the greatest quarterback of all time in Pat Mahomes when it's all said and done. So, yeah, 49ers have their work cut out for them, to say the least. Um, on Sunday night, we have... The Steelers versus the Dolphins, kind of grody, not going to lie. But uh, all in all, I think this should be a good one. That's that's really probably the optimistic brain speaking more than anything else. But I like to think on the optimistic side that we're going to have a good game when it's all said and done. Tua will likely be back from his concussion at this point, but who's to say? I mean, it was a obviously very severe concussion he suffered a couple weeks ago, so... No idea if he's going to get back from that this week. If not, still got Teddy in there to uh, to ride the ship, so should probably still be a good one. We'll have to see if Kenny Pickett, with his uh, with him suffering that injury this week, uh, plays. But assuming he's good to go, I think this could be a close game, uh, regardless of what the uh, the talent disparity might be between these two teams. Might want to look at the under though. If this is a close game, that likely means the teams are combining for forty or less points, and if well, first off, I think the Steelers' defense is going to dictate the pace of this game, probably going to hold the uh, hold the score low. Steelers' offense, we know, is not going to score a whole lot of points, especially going up against that vaunted pair of corners in uh, Byron Jones and Xavier Howard. Um, that's not good news for anyone, let alone whether it be uh, Kenny Pickett or whether it be Mitch Trubisky in this one. Feels like it's going to be a low-scoring affair no matter what, so I would be, if it's a mid-40s sort of over-under, like a 45 uh, point over under. I'm taking the under on that one for sure. But again, 
one that we're going to have to maybe take a look at for the pick pentathlon when we get there on Thursday. Uh, and rounding out the notable matchups we've got on Monday night, the Bears versus the Patriots. Uh, the fact that this one is even nationally televised is an affront to God himself. Um, who even thought that putting this on prime time was a good idea? At what point in the scheduling process did we look at a Patriots versus Bears matchup and be like, yup, that right there is prime time material. Boy, can I not wait to watch that and have that on my TV with not a single other game to watch no matter what. I mean, you already had the Bears in prime time once, I think. You don't need to do this to us, guys. You don't need to torture the viewing public like this. There was definitely... I mean, hell, let me just scroll back up into the games I just talked about. Hell, you could put... Really, there's not really a whole lot of great options. But Chiefs versus 49ers, I would rather watch that than watch Bears versus Patriots on Monday night. That is going to be an absolute South Park-esque cripple fight next Monday night. That, I mean, I would say it's going to be fun to watch. I'm still going to watch it because I have a sickness and I have a, an obligation to you as listeners to at least watch the game. But my God, am I not going to have fun doing that. Uh, with that said, though, putting a pin in that, we are almost done with week six with the exception of that Monday night recap on Thursday, interestingly enough. But with that, that is all for this episode. If you enjoyed, subscribe to a five-star rating so we can grow this bad boy a little bit. If you didn't enjoy, take that opinion to your grave and tell people you loved it anyways because we are, again, trying to grow this bad boy and we don't need your bad publicity. If you do have bad publicity, I will find you. Ah, not really. I don't have those sorts of resources. Either way, I release episodes two times a week uh, during the football season. Got the NFL on Tuesdays. College football plus Monday Night Football recap on Thursdays. Any additions or changes, I will let y'all know as they occur. Follow me on all my socials at Caleb Verzak. Link will be in the description so you don't have to f spell my absolutely fucked up, just mean Eastern Block name. Missing some vowels, missing some consonants. It's a fun one to just kind of guess how it's spelled. It's, you know, it's a fun one. I'll just put it that way. If you want to contact the show, shoot me an email at unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. That is, once again, unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. Just put in all caps, business or show. To start the subject line, so you, you can be categorized accordingly. Thank you so much for tuning in to Unqualified Analysis. And as always, I've got no clue what I'm talking about. But one thing I did learn this week... The term snake oil salesman, in this, you know, peeling back the curtain, I did not learn this this week. I learned this quite some time ago, but it is good to uh, good to get the knowledge out there because I feel like a lot of people don't know. The term snake oil salesman, as I lovingly referred to friend of the show and Jesus Christ for that matter, Jack Easterby earlier in this episode, absolutely is not a reference to real snake oil. Actually, fun fact, uh, the substance known as snake oil has actually been used in traditional Eastern medicine for hundreds, if not thousands of years in China and actually has some legitimately anti some legitimate anti-inflammatory properties. Um, the term snake oil salesman can be created or can be credited rather to one man, one Clark Stanley, who noticed that Chinese migrant workers were using the traditional oil for their ailments and decided he would make his own cocktail with rattlesnakes instead of the uh, traditional uh, Chinese water snake. Uh, he created this whole mythos that he sold to people on his road shows about how the Hopi tribe had taken him in and shown him this ancient healing practice and had a fancy demonstration to make his point where he'd he'd cut open a rattlesnake, he'd boil it, the fat would come to the surface, and then he would bottle that up and be like, this is this is my concoction. And, and of course, after hearing the purported anti-inflammatory properties, 
Stanley sold a great deal of snake oil. I mean, make no mistake about it. It was selling like hotcakes for, I believe, over... He had a good, like, two-decade run where he was just going town to town, moving from place to place. Um, not only did the rattlesnake variant not actually work, certain properties of the Chinese water snakes are what make the uh, concoction work, make it so the anti-inflammatory uh, response actually happens. Uh, a federal investigation in 1917 found that Clark Stanley concocted or Clark Stanley's concoction, rather, excuse me, didn't even have rattlesnake uh, in it at all. It was completely fabricated. So from now on, that when you, when you refer to, uh, know that when you refer to uh, a snake oil salesman, you're not casting aspersions on the actual substance. No, no, no. You are casting aspersions on the salesman themselves, i.e. Jack Easterby. See you Thursday.